You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Well, good morning, Vineyard Church. Good morning, good morning. And it is always so good to worship together. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard, and we are so thankful that you've joined us this morning. I want to take a moment and welcome everyone on the live stream as well. We know there are many of you tuning in who maybe couldn't make it this morning. You're traveling or sick or just couldn't get in, and we are praying for you that this morning is a blessing to you and your family as well. We're continuing the series, as you saw on the video, called The Best Sermon Ever, where we're studying the Sermon on the Mount together. And I want to start today by by asking a question, a question that can make some of us squirm a little bit in our seats, but it's a simple question. The question is this, what makes you angry or hangry, perhaps? What makes you angry? Maybe it's when someone cuts you off on the road by crossing two lanes of traffic to get right in front of you only to slam on the brakes because there's a red light coming their way. And then you, right, decide to swerve over and try to cut them off. But when you're approaching them, you see that little Vineyard Church of the Rockies bumper sticker and you have a decision to make. Do I bless or do I curse in this moment? Right? Maybe it's, maybe it's Chick-fil-A. God, love, I love Chick-fil-A, but why do I always crave Chick-fil-A on Sunday after I've promised my children that we're going to go get a chicken sandwich and a shake? Like always on Sunday, why does it have to be closed on Sundays? Well, our good friend Kanye West would say, you closed on Sundays. You my Chick-fil-A. Millions of dollars. Millions from that phrase. Perhaps it's, I'm guilty of this one, right? When your spouse, Natalie can attest to this, maybe your spouse is stressed out, things aren't going well, and you walk up to her, because in this scenario, I'm the one doing the stupid talking, and I go, Natalie, quit being so stressed. Being stressed isn't going to help. She's like, telling me not to be stressed when I'm already stressed has never worked. You need to drop the line. These things can make us angry, but they just ooze out of our mouths. I promise you that if you are not an angry person, if you're just relaxed all of the time, I do have the recipe for disaster. Learn, learn, not that like I'm wishing this upon you, I guess that came out a little weird, but learn from my mistakes, okay? First, it starts by moving. So you pack all of your stuff into a box, then you carry that box somewhere else, and then you unpack that box. Nothing sets the mood for anger like moving. And then don't just buy one puppy, buy two puppies, brother and sister puppies. I don't know why we did this. They're the cute little puppies that if they weren't so cute, you wouldn't know what to do with them, but they eat your sandals and then barf it all over the house. And then, if you're still not feeling it, pick up a new sport, like that game, golf. Why do I love to hate golf so much? I used to play baseball, and in baseball, you would stand in the batter's box, someone would throw 90 miles an hour at you, and the really good pitchers would like, be able to curve the ball so that it would sweep across the plate. And in a split second, you can make a decision and swing or not swing, and if you're really good, you can actually even direct the ball. You can pull it or you can push it, and the ball's coming at you and moving through all kinds of crazy things. But why in golf can you not do the same thing? 
It should be so easy. Like you put the little white ball on perfectly manicured grass and you hit it, but it never goes where you want it to go. If you ever wonder if you're an angry person, do all three of those things within the same month and I bet you will experience some newfound anger welling up within you. I'm an external processor, so it's quite therapeutic for me. These are all quite personal, but enough about me. What about you? We should talk about you this morning. What is it that makes you angry? What makes you angry? We're talking about anger today because as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we're now beginning to enter into some really tough scriptures. Earlier in the summer, I talked about how the Sermon on the Mount kind of has three clear realities that can be seen almost every other paragraph or so. The three realities are the glory, the terror, and the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. But today, it's mostly terror and hero. And I want to remind you that although we're spending 10 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount together, Jesus preached all of this in one sitting. He preached it all in one sitting. We've broken it up week by week, little by little, so that we can fit it together over the whole summer and kind of work our way through it. But it is important to remember that Jesus didn't preach this little by little. He preached it in one full sermon. So as he makes a point, it's setting up the next point, and it's setting up the next point, and it's setting up the next point. And so we have to remember kind of the whole scope and sequence of the Sermon on the Mount because everything he just said informs what he's about to say. Last week, Natalie taught on the famous verse when Jesus said, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the religious leaders. That your holiness needs to be greater than the Pharisees. And of course, this only happens, as she taught last week, if you surrender your life to Christ, allowing his righteousness to fill you, his righteousness to define you, not your past or current mistakes. But it's right after that verse, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. On the tail end of that verse is where we pick up today. And Jesus continued by then listing six things in a row that tend to trip humans up. Six things in a row that are hard, challenging things to talk about. And each one started with the famous phrase, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. Jesus was calling back to the Old Testament references with that phrase. You've heard it said in Leviticus, or you've heard it taught from your religious leaders, or for years you thought approaching God was to be done in this kind of way, but now I'm here, said Jesus, and now I'm starting and establishing a new covenant, and what I want to invite you into is something wholeheartedly new. Live this way. Allow your heart to be transformed in this kind of manner and experience the flourishing life of the kingdom of God in a new kind of way. You've heard it said, but I say to you. We only have time to talk about the first three topics today, but each one of these topics can kind of make you slink down into your chair a little bit. And once church is finished and we're all in the lobby and smiling and shaking hands, these tend to be the topics that mean I don't get a lot of eye contact on the way out of church. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. These are sensitive topics. They're difficult things for many of us to talk about. But aren't you glad that we've tried to build a church where you can talk about hard things surrounded by incredible hope and love in Jesus Christ? I mean, personally, I love that we serve a God who talks about hard things but does it with unconditional love, desiring mercy for every 
one who hears. I love that about Jesus, but it doesn't mean that it makes everything easy. Sometimes it's still challenging. Today's message is titled straight from the first three topics that Jesus brought up in the Sermon on the Mount, three consecutive points in a row. Today's message is titled Anger, Adultery, and Divorce. This is the time, right, when you work your way through the Sermon on the Mount that you just think, man, let's go back to the Beatitudes. We all love the Beatitudes, right? We love the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers. Let's go back to blessed are the peacemakers. That We all feel good on the inside when we talk about blessed are the peacemakers. These are not always the real crowd pleasers, anger, adultery, and divorce. And since these are tough topics, and since, quite honestly, the church hasn't always done a very good job talking about them, then I am willing to show you my life first. And it's not that pretty. So start with anger. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus said these famous yet terrifying words. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, don't even hate someone. Don't curse them. Don't let anger smolder within you because that creates actually the same kind of judgment as murder itself. Cursing someone, demeaning them, allowing anger to grow within your heart towards another. Jesus says acting like that is a whole lot like murdering them. And I told you I would go first, and I am guilty when it comes to this point. I grew up in an angry home. The anger in my home was demonstrated in a lot of different kinds of ways, and it turns out that angry homes can sometimes make angry children. I've always been pretty optimistic. I've always had a bit of joy in my life. But growing up, if my switch was flipped, you would not recognize me. It wasn't anger. I wasn't a Christian, so I couldn't call it frustration, which is like our little code word for anger. It was rage. It was rage. I got into a number of fistfights growing up, all the way up to college. And it got so bad, my parents didn't even really know what to do with me. And on days that I I wouldn't throw hands, I could murder someone with my voice. I could tear them down with the best of them. And what would come out of my heart and out of my mouth to the people around me was so demeaning. Tearing them down. It was just misguided anger, hatred, and pain just spewing out of my mouth. It's probably important to also confess to you that I haven't been in a fist fight in a while. This is, I got a couple cheers. The front row was worried. (laughs) I haven't been in a fist fight in a while. That's really good. Um, But if I'm not careful, my anger will still show up. My anger will still well up in here and spew out on people around me. But most of the time when my anger flares up today, It gets directed straight at me. Others have felt my anger, but nobody has felt it like I do. I mean, I've just straight cursed myself and demeaned myself. When something doesn't go right or I I mess something up or I sin and I miss the mark, I can be violently aggressive to myself. And according to Scripture, right, according to the words of Christ, I'm 
murdering the image of God within me. This is part of my current struggle. But the scripture didn't stop there. And I told you I would go first. So how about the next one, adultery? Jesus sounded radical when it came to adultery and lust. Countercultural then, definitely countercultural today. In verse 27, Jesus taught, you've, you've heard it said, you must not commit adultery, but I say to you, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The words of Jesus. And I'm, I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that I've been to, faithful to Natalie our entire marriage, but that doesn't mean I've never struggled with lust. And Jesus has this unique way of showing us that external holiness is really good, that we need to aspire to that. But what's even better is transformation at the core of who you are. How how we need so much more, how life in the kingdom is about a complete transformation from the inside out. Because even looking at a woman lustfully is committing adultery. Even looking at images on a screen is committing adultery. Even living screen-free in a fantasy land in your mind is committing adultery. And of that, I am guilty. Like many in our day and age, I was exposed to pornography at a very early age. Ten years old. And that was 27 years ago. So 10 years old is about average right now. And shortly after my exposure, I was the kid who started showing other kids. And I'm not proud of my past. It's not, it's not something to be proud of to say that you were addicted to pornography for like 12 years of your life. But I do rejoice in this, that since March 2004, I have been completely set free from Jesus, and I haven't looked at a single image, video, or anything that even resembles pornography because Christ has transformed me in this area from the inside out. It is worth rejoicing over. But I also know it's not everyone's story, at least not yet. I know some or many are still struggling And so I want to say it clearly so everyone here can hear, so everyone online can know. If you are addicted to porn, you can find freedom in Christ. You can find freedom in Christ. We'll talk more about how in a minute, but I do want to continue working my way through these topics because Jesus still wasn't done. He also talked about divorce. Jesus talked about divorce a couple of times in the Gospels. And other New Testament writers did too. And and here's the thing, right? They all make it pretty clear that outside of harmful or unique circumstances, divorce isn't our calling. By the way, it's not our calling to be rageaholics either, and it's not our calling to struggle with lust or adultery either. This is all in one city. But like anger and like adultery have also been affected by divorce. And because of that, I feel like I have a pretty tender place in my heart for pastoring topics like this. Natalie and I have been married to each other for 14 years, both of our first marriages, and I'm grateful for that. But I grew up in a blended family, from parents who grew up in a blended family. And I would need at least two hands this morning to count all the divorces that have happened in my family system. Two hands. And I would need a third hand to talk about all of my stepbrothers and stepsisters, many of whom I've never even met, because 
when you get married and divorced as quickly as some have in my family, it's sometimes you don't even get around to meeting everyone. I share all this because it's important to know that if we're talking about three really hard topics, in anger, in adultery, and in divorce, you're going to find a really grace-filled church. And you're going to find a really grace-filled pastoral team because we have seen it all and we've lived through it all. Jesus doesn't love divorce, but I've never had a theological argument with someone who, who thinks they do love divorce. And so if you've been divorced, I want to say it clearly, you're in a good church. You are in a good church to find healing. If you fly off the rails with anger and rage, if you've ever cursed anyone or murdered anyone literally or spiritually, you are in a good church. And if you've ever struggled with adultery or lust, this is a place where you can belong and find healing and find transformation. I mean, we don't want to get stuck in these things. It's not like we like them or we celebrate them, but this is a church where you can encounter the living God and supportive community, and you can be healed and transformed. I hope and I pray that we are always a church filled with murderers and adulterers and folks who have broken relationships because I have personally experienced the transformative power of Jesus Christ and I want everybody else to experience it too. And I realized this is like really heavy. We just had 4th of July, Sunday, Natalie got to preach a really sweet text and then I've got to deal with hard topics. I get it. I know these topics bring up pain, but Jesus took this stuff pretty seriously. And when we run across this stuff in scripture, it does allow us an opportunity to really sit with the Lord and try to take some of this stuff as seriously as he does. And so I want to go back to the first question that I asked, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? The teachings of Christ were radical 2,000 years ago, and, and they're just as radical today. In the days of Christ, people dealt with the same kind of hatred and anger and division that we experience today. In his day, Jews hated Romans, hated Romans because Rome had occupied their land. They were the oppressors, and Jews hated them. Jews hated Samaritans because they disagreed on all kinds of religious ideologies, and there was incredible racial tension between Samaritan and Jew. Jews even hated Jews because of ideological differences. Does this sound familiar to anybody at all when we read this text? I mean, it's, it's radical text. It would, it would be like Jesus going to Ukraine and saying, Ukrainians, you can't hate the Russians. That's not right. You can't hate the Russians, this invading force. You, you can have righteous anger about the sin. You can, you can be righteously filled with anger about the situation, but you can't hate the person. You can't hate the person. You can't curse the person. You can't hate the political extremists who maybe live a couple doors down from you. You can't hate your neighbor who waves whatever flag drives you crazy. And last time I checked, there's about 100 flags that can offend someone. There are about 100 flags that, that have probably offended all of us in this room. But Jesus says that hatred and cursing cannot have space in the believer's heart. Cannot have space in the believer's heart. So what makes you angry? And maybe a better follow-up question, what do you do with that anger? What do you do with that anger? Now, Jesus went on to say something that we probably don't want to hear that much. But he went on to say in this text that reconciliation is one of your antidotes. 
And of course, in other scriptures, we, we are taught that we can deal with anger in other ways, right? I mean, read the Psalms, and clearly one of the ways is this like holy prayer up to God where you release all of your anger to him in a lament, and he comes with his peace. But in this particular text, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says reconciliation is one of your antidotes. And we don't like it because reconciliation usually means that you have to draw near to the person who is making you angry. Not always. Not always because some situations aren't safe and you should keep your distance. But oftentimes, and for many of us, reconciliation means you draw near. And Jesus goes on to say, actually, reconcile first. Reconcile before worship. Reconcile before worship. He says, if you're going to the temple to leave a sacrifice, but you realize you have something against a brother or sister, leave the sacrifice there. Go and reconcile and then come back and worship. Reconcile first because it does something to your heart. It does something to reflect the nature of God who is reconciling all things to himself. I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one who has gotten into a fight with your family on the way to church. Some of you are really slinking right now because it happened like 30 minutes ago. In those moments... If you're like me, and I think there's quite a bit of overlap, in those moments, it's a lot easier to say, you know what, you sit there, and I'm going to sit next to you, but I'm not going to talk to you. I'm just going to worship because I need to get right with God. And in fact, I'm going to drop my kids off so that I can get some space so I can really get right with God. We're going to talk about this later. But Jesus says, no, actually, you got to reconcile first. That's the goal. It doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. Reconcile first. It would be embarrassing to tell you how many times I've reconciled with my kids in that very parking lot before I come in here on a Sunday morning. But I've got I've to at least try first before I come in. I've got to at least say the words before I come in. Even if it's not all the way there, my hope is that I can live into this scripture. Seek reconciliation when you feel anger. What about adultery? How are you doing with adultery? How are you doing with lust? And we already talked about how Jesus directly connected adultery and lust together, that they're one in the same, but we haven't talked about what happened right after that verse, what Jesus said and how he called us to respond. Verse 29 says this radical thing, pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. In other words, be vigilant and be violent when it comes to cutting sin out of your life. Jesus obviously isn't being literal here. He doesn't want a church full of pirates. Okay? We'd have a lot of fun, but he's not being literal, but he is being honest. He is being honest. He knows that this stuff will kill relationships. And so he's saying, be as violent against it as it is to your relationship. Cut it out. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. Seek freedom even if it costs you something. Even if it blows your cover, get help. Even if it blows your cover and the shame's welling up and it comes out, seek a counselor or try celebrate recovery. Listen, we've always felt like we can't challenge you to change if we also don't have an avenue for healing. And celebrate recovery might be the best place for some of us. Every Monday night in this very room at 6.30 p.m., people gather in this space to seek freedom and many have found it. A week at a time, a month at a time, a year at a time. 
And I have found that going the first time is usually the hardest because by going, you're admitting you need help. But listen, God works through humility. God works through humility. Being free for 18 years on a personal note is, is one of the best things that's happened to me. But it has taken vigilance. It has taken guardrails in my life. There are a lot of popular shows that I just don't watch at all because the holiness and the freedom that I've been walking in the last 10 years isn't worth watching that or watching that or starting the momentum in a different direction. Plucking out your eyes or cutting off your hand was, was Jesus being provocative on purpose because he knew that temporary pain compared to flourishing in the kingdom of life, man, that is pain that's worth experiencing for a moment. Be decisive, Jesus is saying, in how you deal with sin in your life. Finally, how has divorce impacted you? I know, it's how, I know how it's impacted me. How has divorce impacted you? It breaks my heart. Listen, it breaks my heart every single time I meet someone who's been through a painful marriage a relationship that's fallen apart, a divorce that's impacted kids or finances or relationships and families, and all they felt is shame and condemnation, most of the time at the hands of the church. But that's not how we do it here. You can find healing here. You can find redemption here. I also feel compelled to say that if you're here or you're, you're listening online and maybe you're at your last leg in your marriage and, and, and you're starting to consider divorce, I want to encourage you this morning to consider the alternative. Imagine a marriage filled with reconciliation and redemption. Imagine the testimony of a healed marriage. If you're moving towards divorce, at least give reconciliation everything you've got first. Meet with a pastor, get couples therapy, gather with other believers, and don't rush into that decision because if you're both open to the power of Christ moving in your life, he will do something magnificent in your marriage. But complex things usually don't have very simple answers, and I understand that. I want to close by reminding you of a few things this morning. If you're a murderer, which according to scripture also includes rageaholics or people who consistently curse and put others down, scream at their spouse or their kids, if you're an adulterer, which according to scripture also means people who struggle with lust, or if your family tree is broken and filled with divorce like mine is, take heart. Because in this space and in the kingdom of God, you are in good company. Jesus says he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came for those who are desperate for help and keenly aware of their need for a savior. If you're a parent and you're wondering if your anger or your lust or your divorce has broken something in your family, something beyond repair, remember this. Jesus is a master at making all things new. He is a master at making redemption, a reality in your life. If you've been through a divorce or you, you've yelled at your spouse or kids way too much, maybe you've been addicted to porn your entire life, hear that God loves you. And he not only loves you, he loves to love you. It's not a begrudging kind of love. He actually, it brings him joy to love you. He's not dragging his feet to meet you. He's wooing you 
into a relationship with him again. He's not offended by your messy situation, and you can't out God's love. You can't out God's plan, and you surely can't out God's purposes for your life. He may ask you to take some time for healing. He may ask you to rearrange your life a little bit to seek transformation, but you are not damaged goods. You're not put on the shelf or relegated to some kind of spectatorship in the kingdom of God. He still has plans and purposes for the rest of your life. He's still orchestrating ways for you to follow him in the transformation of all things. But it does take humility and it does take surrender. The very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first phrase Jesus spoke to the crowd, I feel like he might be speaking to our church and to some of us individually right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stand before Christ this morning with a poverty of heart, and I promise you he will do the rest. Our anger, our adultery, our divorce might feel disqualifying in the eyes of man, but God always sees these as an opportunity for redemption. Jesus, let your kingdom come in our church, in our lives, in our relationships, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.